What does it mean to inwardly digest God's Word? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Dr. John Warwick Montgomery tells his story of finding confessional Lutheranism to be the most scripturally faithful theology. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. You've got all these great answers to all these great questions. Why is there a debate among Lutheran pastors about the imposition of ashes on Ash Wednesday? When Jesus was conducting his earthly ministry, did he see the inside of the temple the way that we on Sunday morning were able to see the inside of the church? And what is the weight of glory that Paul mentions in 2 Corinthians chapter 4? Welcome back to Issues Etc. It's time to respond to your unanswered Bible questions. Joining us to do so, Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. He's associate pastor of Crown of Life Lutheran in San Antonio, Texas, and author of the book, Reading Isaiah with Luther. Brian, welcome. Hey, it's great to be here, Todd. And Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel, Wolfmiller One, and he's author of several books, including His American Christianity Failed. Brian, welcome to you. Thank you, Todd. Pastor Wolfmiller, Kobe has a question. He says, I'm writing to ask a very practical question. How do I get more faith in Christ? I find myself often doubting my own salvation, despite the fact that I'm baptized and that Christ objectively reconciled me to God. I guess my doubts center on the strength of my faith because I don't feel like I have faith as much as I truly desire to. How can I gain more faith? This is a common experience for Christians. Just the question of, is my faith strong enough? Is my faith deep enough? Will I, do I cling to the Lord's mercy with enough fervor? And one of the the tricky things is that faith is not strong in itself. It is strong in its object. And so the way to strengthen our faith is, ironically, to not worry about the strength of our faith. I remember, if I could illustrate by a story, and then maybe a practical application, there was a, a lady who was a dying, Linda, we'll all meet her in the resurrection, beautiful lady, and, and she said when I went to see her, Pastor, I don't think my faith is strong enough to save me. I said to her, well, Linda, I think, I think you're right. <laughs> I don't think it is, but but your Jesus is strong enough to save you. And he says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you could tell the mountain to go and swim in the ocean. In other words, it's not the strength of your faith that matters. It's the strength of your Jesus that matters. And she said to me, oh, pastor, you got me there. Which is just, this is the whole point is that when our eyes are off of ourself and on Jesus, that in fact is strong faith. Strong faith doesn't realize that it's strong faith. So the way to, to think about this is through the scriptures is Romans chapter 10. So St. Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So I give my attention not to my faith, to the strength or weakness of it, but rather to the hearing of God's word and to the rejoicing in God's word. And then the strength of my faith is handled by the Holy Spirit who works through the word, not only to give that faith, but to strengthen it and especially that trusting in the promises of God and that confidence that the God who speaks to us is the God who cannot lie. Diane has a question for you, Pastor Ketchelmeyer. When reading the Psalms, David is praying that God destroy his enemies. We are told to pray for our enemies. I find this ironic. 
Well, uh, Diane, this is uh, one of these things in Scripture where we have this paradox, okay? So yes, we are to love our enemies. Yes, we are to pray for our enemies. But at the same time, we are praying that God's kingdom would come and that God would prevent the plots and the plans of the enemies of the cross who are trying to prevent God's kingdom from coming. So it's one of these things where we understand in the Psalms that primarily this is Jesus is the one who is the high priest who's praying, who is the man who's blessed in Psalm 1. He is the king in Psalm 2, and he's a suffering servant in Psalm 3. And so when Jesus prays, because as high priest, he's praying with us, he's praying for us as his church. In Psalm 3, you have this whole understanding of there are many foes that have risen against him. You see this specifically at the crucifixion, when the enemies of God are trying to prevent his kingdom from coming and trying to prevent the hearing of the words of Jesus. And so you have many are rising up against me. And so he's praying in Psalm 3 saying, arise, O Yahweh, and save me. Strike all my enemies on the cheek. Remember, Jesus is the one who was struck on the cheek. So it is at the cross, of course, where Jesus is crying out and saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they've done. So yes, it is true that we are to love our enemies. It is true we are to forgive our enemies. But at the same time, we are praying that God's will would be done, that God's kingdom would come, that God's name would be kept holy. And this is what we're doing in the Lord's Prayer when we are praying with Jesus and we're praying together our Father. And so we say that we want God's will to be done. And when does that happen? Well, it happens when God breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of our enemies, the evil devil, the world, and our own sinful nature, which of course do not want God's name to be kept holy, nor do they want God's kingdom to come. And so when we're praying to God, we're praying that God is the one who will bring justice. God is the one who will bring vengeance. And when we are asking him to stop the plots and the plans of those who are trying to prevent his kingdom, we are asking that God would do the work to have his word be heard. But in that same breath, we're also praying that God would convert, that he would forgive. And so this is what we do in the litany when we say in the litany that, you know, we beseech you, O Lord. We ask you, O Lord, to hear us, hear us, and you hear us when we pray that you would forgive our enemies, our persecutors, and our slanderers, and to turn their hearts. So we're both praying that God would be the one who brings vengeance, that he prevents the enemies from trying to prevent his kingdom from coming. But at the same time, we're praying for our enemies that God would turn their hearts. And so when we have enemies in the church, these slanderers, the persecutors, those who hate us because we're followers of Jesus or whatever it may be, that we can sing that song with Zechariah, that blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. He's redeemed his people and he has delivered us from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. He has delivered us. He saved us so that we could be free to worship God without fear. So it's one of these paradoxes where, yes, you do love your enemy. Yes, you do pray for your enemy, but you also pray that God's will would be done and God's kingdom would come, which means that he would destroy any of the plots or plans of the enemies trying to prevent it. A question from Angela for you, Pastor Wolf Miller. Why is there a debate among Lutheran pastors about the imposition of ashes during Ash Wednesday services? Some congregations forego them altogether. And then a follow-up question after that. There is no command from the Lord to 
celebrate Ash Wednesday or to liturgically place ashes on the head, and so this is an open matter. But the Lutheran Church has, in general, an, a very generous view toward the tradition of the Church, and this tradition of putting ashes on the head in Ash Wednesday. It goes back to the ancient church. It seems like it, it was lost for a while, maybe especially in the Lutheran church, but is revived in its popularity. And so the Lutheran church in general says, hey, we want to receive the traditions that we can unless they contradict with the word of God. And so that's probably where the debate comes from. In the Catholic church, things like the putting of ashes on the forehead on Ash Wednesday are called sacramentals. Like they're, they're not considered full sacraments, but they have a little bit of grace to give. And we reject that idea that these symbolic things that are given to us in the liturgy are there to teach us and to point us to God's word. And if the ashes can help remind us uh, that we're dying, that we're mortal, that we are corrupt because we've inherited that sinful corruption from Adam, that that's great. We remember that, and it helps us to repent and to know that the Lord Jesus will take our corruption and he will rescue it in the resurrection. He'll take our sin and forgive us by his death and resurrection on the cross. So it can be helpful, but it can, I suppose, be distracting. And because we don't have a command, it's a matter of Christian freedom. The second question from Angela in Illinois for you, Pastor Wolf Miller, are Lutherans Protestants? I've seen writings arguing both, yes, we are, and others adamantly declaring, no, we're not. Yeah, that's a, this is a tricky question. The word Protestant comes from the second Diet of Spire in 1529, where King Charles V was back from his honeymoon in Spain, and he's like, what are you guys doing letting the Lutherans be Lutheran? We need to make it illegal. You have to be Roman Catholic again. And a bunch of the princes stood up and protested, and so they became known as the protesters or the Protestants, and th those guys were... I think all Lutheran, maybe a couple had Reformed leanings, but they were basically all Lutherans at the beginning. But then that term Protestant took on something of a life of its own. And I think it just depends on how you define the word to see if the Lutherans are, are Protestants. If you define Protestant as those churches that stood up against the abuses of the Roman church coming out of the Middle Ages and their high view of human nature and their strange view of imputation of grace, then we certainly would be Protestants. The problem is now it's a lot of times used for the, those churches that are anti-sacramental, that, that don't believe that they're kind of the free will theologians that, that believe that we have to choose God's grace, or maybe even the Reformed theologians, which see all the spiritual things happening on the inside rather than through the external call. And in that way, we can make a distinction between the Lutherans and the other Protestants, because we have a, a strong understanding of the way the Lord works through the sacraments. So I think that question all depends on how you define the word Protestant. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller is our guest, along with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions. We'll get to a question about why God changed Abraham and Sarah's names in the Old Testament. You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by purchasing a cell phone case from Crossway, crossweh.com slash LPR. You'll find cell phone cases for Issues Etc., Lutheran Public Radio, The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, and Luther's Seal with the Reformation Solas, crossweh.com slash LPR. A percentage of your purchase will support Issues Etc., crossweh.com slash LPR. 
Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Our church loves and is grateful for those that serve our country. Operation Barnabas, part of Ministry to the Armed Forces, equips you to reach out to veterans in your community to bring Christ to those that served. Call Ministry to the Armed Forces at 314-996-1337 or email lcmschaps at lcms.org. Thank you for your service. Thank you. God bless our military. A number of people have asked about Ad Crucem's process to order our faux stained glass window clings. It's easy. Email us with your window's dimensions, the images you require, and the style you like, and we will quote to design, print, and ship your window clings to you. We recommend having them professionally installed. If you wish to purchase a sample, we have a gorgeous small Luther Rose cling available on the website. Pop on over to adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M.com. What is better than a vacation to the emerald water and white sand of Destin, Florida? A Caribbean-caliber Gulf Coast destination without international travel hassles. What is better is receiving confessional word and sacrament ministry at Grace Lutheran Church while on vacation to the emerald water and white sand of Destin, Florida. Divine service on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. and on Advent and Lent Wednesdays at 6 p.m. GraceDestin.org A mobile Lutheran Bible study. You're listening to Issues Etc. From the beginning of creation. This is Ken Ham, author of Divided Nation, Cultures in Chaos and a Conflicted Church. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus answered a question by pointing back to Genesis. He said, But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Note that Jesus said, from the beginning of creation. Many Christians today want to argue that God used evolution to create mankind and that we're descended from ape-like creatures. But Jesus said that mankind has existed from the beginning of creation. Consider that in the evolutionary worldview, mankind appeared billions of years after the beginning. And yet Jesus said, we've been around from the beginning. You see, you just can't add evolution to the Bible at all. No, God didn't use evolution. Discover answers to your questions about creation and evolution when you visit our website at AnswersRadio.com. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, author of the book Reading Isaiah with Luther, and Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, who's author of Has American Christianity Failed? You can purchase both of these books at our website, issuesetc.org. Click Talk On Demand Archives, or you can call Concordia Publishing House, 1-800-325-3040. Look for Reading Isaiah with Luther and Has American Christianity Failed? Here's a question for you, Pastor Ketchelmeyer from Matthew. He says, as I get deeper into my studies, I find correlation between the Old and New Testaments. Often, no coincidences here, and it's beautiful. I'm begging to understand the significance of law and gospel. My question is, why does God change Abram's and Sarah's name, and is there any significant significance in the ah when God changes their name to Abraham and Sarah? 
Yeah, Matthew, this is a question that can easily be answered in Genesis chapter 17, and this is where you have the name change itself. And so in the scripture, this is not the only time that this happens, but it is very frequent with the Hebrew mindset that a name reflects who the person is or what the person's going to do or what the person has done. And in particular, connected to faith in God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so in Genesis chapter 37, when you have God himself being called as El Shaddai. Remember, the confession of El Shaddai is always going to be about to multiply. So it's that promise originally that was given to Adam and Eve, and then it was given to Noah and his sons, and then it's given to Abraham to be fruitful and to multiply, that Abraham was going to be the father of a multitude of nations. So in the text itself, it tells us that when Abraham was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abraham, which of course is always going to be the second person of the Holy Trinity. The Son is the one who makes the Father known. And he says, I am El Shaddai. So you have the name and that confession of who God is and what's he going to do. And he says, I'm making my covenant between me and you, and I'm going to multiply you exceedingly. And so this whole understanding of multiplying is going to be the issue with the name change for Abram. So he's Abram, Okay, when Abram was 99, but later on in verse 14, he says that with this covenant with me and you shall, now you're going to be a father of a multitude of nations. So you go from Avram, Abram, if you get that B or that V kind of sound there, you go from Av, which actually means father. So you have father Hamon, which means multitude, and the Goyim means the Gentiles or the nations. It's this play on this Hebrew word where Abram is going to be Av, father, Hamon, multitude, and it's Goyim, nation. So you kind of you bring that all together and you come up with this new word, which is Abraham. And that H in the middle there is signifying this kind of this name change here in this play on these Hebrew words. And so you're no longer going to be called Abram, but now you're going to be called Abraham with that H sound there, designating multitude, the Hebrew word Hamon. And so I would say that as you continue in the text, you see the name change for Sarai is to Sarah. And in the text itself, the difference here is that Sarai, the wife of Abram, who is now known as Abraham, you shall not call her Sarai anymore. Why? Because her name is going to be Sarah. And so Sarah, it's a play on Hebrew words. And so Sar means a prince. And the ah on the end of it is going to be the feminine understanding of a prince. So now you have a princess. And so I think you want to see the key here in the shift is that now she's going to be known as a princess. Why? Because the text itself talking about having a multitude of offspring. Here, I'm going to bless her, God says, and I'm going to give to you a son through her, and I'm going to bless her, and she shall give the rise to the nations, and kings of people shall come from her. So you see, she's a princess, and from her is royalty, and you'll have kings that are going to come from the mother who's a princess. So I I think this is what we're really looking at is Sarah has to do with princess and Abraham has to do with a father of multitude of the Goyim, the nations. Pastor Wolf Miller, Matt in Michigan, greetings. Thank you for all you do to sanctify my workout routine. Coming across Acts 8, 16 recently, I was very confused by the idea that people were baptized in the name of Jesus and had not received the Holy Spirit. I'm suspicious of the idea that their baptisms weren't effective because of possible non-use of a Trinitarian formula. 
That said, if their baptisms were effective, why didn't they receive the Holy Spirit? Yeah, this is a tricky passage. So when we look through the book of Acts, here's the big picture that we want to always have in mind, is that the Lord Jesus is fulfilling his promise that the kingdom would come in the preaching of the apostles and the Spirit would accompany that preaching, first in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. It seems like each of those boundaries or borders are difficult so that when the gospel is going from Jerusalem to Judea, there's these difficulties. And and it has to be, the Lord has to almost force the hand of the church through persecution that gets them out of Jerusalem. And then some big obstacles from Jerusalem to Samaria, and then from Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so the Lord, it's it's almost, you get the picture of the Lord sort of pushing the apostles and pushing the church over these hurdles that pass these boundaries that they don't want to go to. And so that's the case in Acts chapter 8, where it says that the gospel goes down, Philip goes down to Samaria, and he's preaching, and the people are being baptized there, and they have to send for the apostles to come down and lay hands on them. And and so this is this, this jump from Judea to Samaria, and the Lord is, is pushing the church over this hurdle. The text that, that is being asked about here is verse 16, but I think it's helpful to go back to verse 14. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them, and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. And then Simon sees it, and he wants to buy the Holy Spirit, and Peter has some harsh words for him. I think the easiest way to understand this is to see that in baptism, in baptism in the name of Jesus, normal baptism, the Holy Spirit is given. But the Holy Spirit also comes for the work of preaching, the work of the office. And that is connected to the apostolic hands. Almost always it's through the laying on of hands of the apostles that the Holy Spirit is given. And so I think the simplest way to understand this text is they were all baptized, but they didn't have any preachers. And so the apostles came down and laid hands on some of the men who were there, and they received the Spirit, that is, the office of preaching, and they began to do that preaching. This is the first ordination of the pastors in Samaria. I think that is a nice way of setting up what comes next, is when Peter is then sent over to the tanner's house, he's there, and he has the vision, and he goes down to preach in Joppa, that the Holy Spirit comes upon them, And Peter says, well, how can I prevent them from being baptized? In other words, the Lord does it in a reverse order there, and that pulls Peter again over one of these boundaries. A similar thing is going to happen also in Acts chapter 19, when Paul finds people who were baptized in the baptism of John, but they hadn't heard of the Holy Spirit. So he there baptizes them and then blesses them with the Holy Spirit. Now, these are all, I think, somewhat difficult and somewhat obscure texts, But I think the easiest way in my thinking to understand it is that every Christian is baptized and receives the Holy Spirit to confess their faith. But this laying on of hands and the gift of the Holy Spirit that comes connected to the apostolic ministry is putting men into the preaching office to deliver the word to that place and set up the church there. Pastor Ketchelmeyer, Glenn says, one of my joys on Sundays is visiting the church with its architecture, ornamentation, statuary, art, and so forth. In Jesus' time, did laymen have the opportunity to enjoy the interior of the temple, the sanctuary, 
or to see the holy places. The priest did, I think King David did. It would seem disappointing if the laity were completely excluded, but I'm sure it was beautiful. How much of this would Jesus have seen? Yeah, uh, Glenn, in these kind of questions, you say, well, what would have happened that's outside of what is written? And that kind of that realm of speculation, we just don't really know. I mean, how much of it would Jesus the man have seen? Okay, I, I can't honestly tell you exactly how much of the temple he saw, but obviously he is teaching outside the temple, obviously there, you know. And so I don't know to what extent, but we do know that it, it's not like you're having guided tours into the temple. I mean, we think of this idea when you go to Europe and you go to a cathedral that's basically just been turned into a museum, that you're going to go in and you're just going to look at the exhibits of all of the ornamentation and the artwork and the statues around a stained glass window. But that's just not the purpose of the temple itself. In fact, in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, where you have Uzziah the king tries to rush in and offer incense, and uh, of course, then he is punished for that, and he is stricken with leprosy. So that whole point of the beauty of the temple, it was for the presence of God there, that the priest would go into that beautiful presence of God. And I think what we really want to see here is just the understanding of we are waiting and anticipating what we cannot see now. So what the eyes cannot see now, these things will be made manifest on the last day, on the last day when we are once again reunited with body and soul in the resurrection of the body, and then we will see all things as they are. I mean, now it's uh, it's the glass dim. You know, it's we we can't really see exactly what it is that we are waiting for, but we have this hope in the promise of God's word of that beatific vision of God. We can't even see God now in the flesh at all, but we're waiting and anticipating for that beauty in the life to come. And, and so I, I think that this is really teaching us that whole understanding, because we remember the temple itself is teaching us about how Jesus is the high priest, and he goes into the holy of holies. Only the high priest would go into the holy of holies once a, a year on the day of atonement, that Jesus is the one who ascends into heaven in the the holy of holies itself, the temple on earth is just basically a model of that for us. But the reality that we have in Jesus far surpasses the temple because Jesus is greater than the temple. So I think we just want to see this as a teaching of waiting and anticipating that we would see the fullness of the beauty of God in the life to come because of Jesus conquering death and the grave. Pastor Brian Ketchelmarie is our guest, along with Pastor Brian Wolf Miller. We're responding to your unanswered Bible questions, and Joyce has one on 2 Corinthians 4.16 and the weight of glory next. How did God address the Gentile nations through the prophet Isaiah? What is God's message to his own people regarding both judgment and consolation? And how does Isaiah's divine message apply to us today? Find out in the new Concordia Commentary on Isaiah, chapters 13 through 27. Learn more at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. The Issues Etc. Book of the Month for February, the Concordia Commentary on Isaiah 13 through 27. Join Lutherans for Life at the For Such a Time as This Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston, Texas. 
Enjoy the testimony and talents of Dove Award-winning musician and adoptee Mark Schultz. Discover expert information and exciting opportunities, and experience the fellowship and celebration, the 2024 Lutheran Adoption Conference, April 10th and 11th in Houston. Find out more and register at lutheransforlife.org conferences. Expert guests, expansive topics, extolling Christ. You're listening to Issues Etc. Luther Academy provides additional theological education for our mission partners around the world, specifically pastors who are asking for additional education but do not have the necessary resources in their own church bodies. By donating to Luther Academy today, you will be supplying food, housing, books, professors, and travel for Lutheran pastors who attend our conferences. To learn more about Luther Academy and how you can donate today, visit lutheracademy.com, lutheracademy.com. With the oldest deaconess program of the LCMS, Concordia University Chicago has fully certified young women for the deaconess vocation for more than 40 years. I'm Deaconess Kristen Wasilak, Program Director for Deaconess Studies. Help us identify the next generation of servants to care for souls, engage our communities in mercy, and teach God's Word. Learn more about Concordia Chicago's Deaconess Program today at cuchicago.edu. cuchicago.edu. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is our guest. Also, Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, we are responding to your unanswered Bible questions. Pastor Wolfmiller, Joyce has a question. What is the weight of glory in 2 Corinthians 4.16? It's a beautiful passage where it's a comparative passage, and so it's really helpful for us to look at it and to think about how we, how we read the Scriptures. Let me read 2 Corinthians 4, let's do 16 to the end of the chapter, 16, 17, 18. Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For a momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal." What a beautiful passage. Now, here, here's the, Paul is talking about this life of suffering, which we live down here in the flesh, where the corruption of the fall shows up in our souls as sin, in our bodies as death. And so we're dragging along through this veil of tears, and we are afflicted by temptation, by trouble, by weakness, by dying, by our own whatever. Our flesh is always dragging us down. The world is always striking out at us. The devil is always tempting and, and shooting at us. So we're in the midst of all this trouble. But Paul is going to compare that affliction to the glory that's on the way. Beautifully, the word in glory in Hebrew, Pastor Ketchmeyer will have to correct me, the word for glory in Hebrew means weight. And so Paul is kind of playing on that idea, is that the, the glory that's on the way, compared to the trouble that we have, that is so weighty and heavy, and this affliction is momentary and light. So just like the glory is eternal, the affliction is temporary, and just like the glory is heavy, it's not going to move, our affliction is light, it's being lifted off of us. 
And so the weight of glory is understood to be in contrast to the lightness of affliction. And it's switching our perspective. It's what Luther would always talk about as seeing the world through the eyes of Jesus. If we look at the world through our own fleshly eyes, we see trouble and affliction. If we look at the world through the eyes of Jesus, things start to look different. And we start to see that the things that are around us are not the eternal things. They're the temporal things. And the things that the Lord has put in place by his word, his mercy, kindness, love, forgiveness, his kingdom, his will, all of these things will last forever. The word of the Lord endures forever. And so the weight of glory is now switching our perspective that that which is to come is that which will always be the glory waiting for us in the resurrection where we stand before the Lord clothed in his perfection and welcomed into his kingdom and completely restored and all sin wiped away, all corruption undone in the original glory of Adam and Eve magnified by the gifts that are won for us by Jesus. That's what weighs us down. That's, I mean, not in a bad way. That's what anchors us. That's what holds on to us. And the affliction, that's blowing away like the chaff. Eunice in South Australia asked Pastor Kachelmeyer, there are so many different translations of the Bible today. Are they all taken from the original Hebrew and Greek, or are they translations from translations? I grew up with the King James Version. Then as a young teenager, my dad, who was a pastor in the LCA, gave us all Revised Standard Versions for Christmas. I now use a new Revised Standard Lutheran Study Bible. What's the best translation and why? Well, the best translation, I, I mean, that's kind of a tough question. I mean, obviously, the worst translation would be the one published by the, the so-called Watchtower Publishing Society of the Jehovah's Witnesses, which would be the New World Translation. That would be the worst. So if you start off with the worst on one end of the spectrum, because that translation is intentionally an interpretation where that publishing house is trying to remove any understanding of Jesus being true God. So you want to stay away from the New world translation or any translations that come from the Jehovah's Witnesses. So I think that even that in itself is kind of an indicator of what you have as a mark of where are you going to look for a translation. If you go to a place like the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Kingdom Halls, and they have their own translation of the Bible that's going to reaffirm what they say, that should be suspect. And you should kind of call into question, why does your publishing house have to have your own translation? And you know it's going to secure whatever you want to hear. With the, the RSV and then the NRSV, th that was kind of the, the so-called academic version of the scripture. When I was at the University of New Mexico studying religious studies, that was what was standard for the academic world is we were required to have a new revised standard version of the Bible. But that has, has come under attack for quite a, a lot of reasons, because kind of like the Jehovah's Witnesses, it has a leaning, a bent to it, where it's going to push more of a liberal agenda. And, and so you're looking for this liberal agenda, like, are you going to translate Alma, the Hebrew word that means virgin, just like the rabbis when they chose the Greek word Parthenos for Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, which means virgin, is we want to be clear on what is being said, that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. So we don't want to just a young maiden, like I believe the NRSV says that. And so you want to look at the these kind of these issues. Is the translation trying to promote a wokeism or trying to take away the distinction between male and female identity, trying to use different types of pronouns than should be used? That, that's always going to be suspect. Personally, I like 
the new King James version, I think would be the best. And here's my reason why, because they translate only begotten, uh, the Greek word monogenes that you have like in John's gospel, chapter one or chapter three, they actually say only begotten. Typically, a lot of your, your ESV standard might say something like only son or other translations. But I, I think that the, the ESV is a good translation. That's the one the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod uses. But just note that the ESV is constantly changing, though. That's kind of a problem when you're trying to memorize uh, scripture passages and the ESV keeps up dating. So it's supposed to be an English standard version, supposed to be taking out the liberal bent of the NRSV, the new revised standard version. And so all of these translations, you you want to be able to know that just because you're reading it in English does not necessarily mean that it's actually giving to you the true intended meaning of the authors from the Greek or the Hebrew. So it's always helpful to look at other scripture translations and ask the question, why are they translating it this way? What's behind it? And if you can, look to find out what the, the Hebrew or the Greek word is. And so with that in mind, even when you're doing a word search, please understand if you're doing a word search of an English word, now all of a sudden you have whatever the interpretation or the principle of translation was being used by the editorial staff. And so when you do a, a word search on an English word, you're looking for places where they've decided in that place to translate it one way and not another way. So it's always helpful to look at the Greek and the Hebrew to understand that. That's why the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod trains the pastors to study the Hebrew and the Greek. For instance, like even the Greek word doulos or the Hebrew word evid, which means servant or slave. I mean, sometimes in English, some passages translate as servant, some passages translate as slave. So that's the whole reason why pastors who are teaching the word should be able and should be familiar with the Hebrew and the Greek that's behind the English language itself. Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer is Associate Pastor of Crown of Life Lutheran Church in San Antonio, Texas, and author of the book Reading Isaiah with Luther. Pastor Brian Wolfmiller is Pastor of St. Paul and Jesus Deaf Lutheran Churches in Austin, Texas. He posts theology on the YouTube channel Wolfmiller One. He's author of several books, including His American Christianity Failed. Pastors Ketchelmeyer and Wolfmiller are graduates of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana, where they form servants in Jesus Christ to teach the faithful, reach the lost, and care for all. Find out about studying for the vocations of pastor or deaconess at ctsfw.edu or by calling 1-800-481-2155, Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Pastor Ketchumara, thank you. It's great to be here, Todd. And Pastor Brian Wolfmiller, thanks to you as well. Thank you. Pastors Ketchelmeyer Wolfmiller will return tomorrow to respond to more of your unanswered Bible questions. Also on Thursday, we'll talk to Dr. Ben Mays about the creation account and Lutheran theologian Herman Sasse. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.